Good morning, church family. If you've got your Bible, please open it. You're going to need that. It's very important. I'm going to be uh, encouraging you to pull that out. Go to Acts 26. We're going to be diving into Acts 26 this week. And while you're turning there and the kids are finding the bingo pictures, um, there's, there's three of them in this slide. So for those of you that don't know how this works, okay, if you're, if you're a kid or a severely ADHD adult, you can also do this. Um, you take the, uh, you take the, there's a, a bingo sheet out there, and you're going to find it's blackout except one. There's one missing from that bingo sheet in all of these slides. So take a look, see if you can find them. So anyway, uh, I'm going to explain, oh yeah, and you, you, you have a prize if you, if you do it. So, and, and I really don't care if you succeed, just come get a prize. Anyway, so um, I'm going to explain what we're doing today. We're going to be looking into the New Testament's third record of Paul's uh, origin story, if you will. Um, the first one is a narrative that was written by Luke in Acts chapter 9. We actually looked at that back in 2021 um, because we've been working through the book of Acts um, rather slowly, which is great. And the second one is in Acts 22, and we read that one uh, several months ago. And there, uh, what Paul is doing, he, he's talking with a mostly Jewish audience about the events that led to his conversion, but he has to cut it short because as soon as he says that God was sending him to witness to the Gentiles, then the people just lost their minds, right? And this is this one in Acts 26 is really, it's the most holistic of the three because while it has uh, different details than the other two, Paul is able to share a lot more of what came after God opened his eyes, okay? So I want you to remember for the sake of context, in today's text, Paul is sharing his testimony with a trio of VIPs. You guys remember this from last week? He's talking to three people. Anybody remember who they are? Yeah. Who? <laughs> King Agrippa, his wife. That was the last one, right? No, you're right. It is Bernice. <laughs> that was Drusilla I was thinking of, and that's, that's, the, that's Felix's wife. Anyway, so, yeah, Bernice, and who's the other? Festus. Portius Festus. So he's the governor of Judea. The other two are king and queen of Judea. Um, so, yeah, so he's, he's in there talking to these three very important individuals. I say important in the sense of because they had authority uh, and a position, not necessarily that they're more important than anyone else. But there's almost nobody in the known world that had more authority than these guys, other than Caesar himself. Okay, so um, remember for the, the past, like, two years, Paul has been basically sitting in minimum security prison, uh, often having been um, brought to the governor to have conversations with him, and so uh, the former governor with Felix. Um, but the Jewish leaders from Israel, they weren't satisfied with Paul being in prison. They wanted him dead, which is why he's again on trial in front of these three folks. Anyway, so we're going to read his defense, and, and there's, there's just there's so much good stuff in this passage. It's really instructive if we take the time to understand what Paul says here. So that, friends, that, that is what is on the agenda for today. We're going to see how a joyful warrior like Paul presented his story of God's work in his life and then see how that gives us a perfect outline for a solid testimony of our faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, So this is what I believe the Lord has led us to do here today. We as believers need to know how to give our own testimony, because God doesn't save people in a vacuum, okay? It is God 
who provides the truth that saves people. And he can give eternal life rather than eternal damnation, but he can also use the sharing of your own personal experience as a way to reach people. So be advised, if you're already a Christian, that I am hopeful that, that Paul's example will provide both a great template for you in sharing your own testimony, but also that it will encourage you to do so. However, if you are not yet a Christian, it's my prayer that God will use this look into Paul's testimony to convict you to trust him, to trust in the truth of Christ, to believe in him as a person and as your, your Lord and Savior. And so with that in mind, um, we're going to open with prayer and then we'll jump in. Father God, I just want to thank you for today, and I thank you for each person that's here. Um, Father, I think if I asked people in this room to raise their hand, if, if their mom was one of the people that led them to you, I believe there'd be a lot of hands going up, so I thank you for moms today. Father, we ask as we look at your word that you'll cause us to be good soil, because as always, we want you to, to put that seed deep, and, and that it will take root and bear fruit in our lives. And Father, we ask in the precious name of your son, Jesus, that we don't leave this place unchanged in some way. I pray that something happens today as it's been said, Lord, that is not in the bulletin. And Father, we lift all of this up to you. We, we ask that you give us courage and conviction to share our story. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, and P.S. God, if there's anybody here that is not a believer, in Jesus' name, soften their hearts, convict them, and bring them to the truth. Amen. All right, so Acts 26, we're going to start in verse 12, okay? So Paul is speaking, and remember, he had also just mentioned just a moment before this that he was a member of the super strict Jewish sect called the Pharisees, okay? Uh, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because the Pharisees thought Jesus was a heretic. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Remember that famous martyr that was stoned under the watchful eye of Paul? Who was it? Stephen, thank you. So <coughs> he goes on, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Okay, so, so what's Paul's point here? Why, why is he sharing all this stuff about how he used to be such an enemy of the faith? See, an important part of a testimony is letting people know where you used to be. And that is totally lost. Okay? Paul, before his conversion, was totally lost. He was living in a way that, that he must have thought the Lord approved of, but it was actually horribly opposed to God's will. And he could not possibly have been much more <laughs> anti-Christian than he really was at that point. But remember, this, this guy, he used to preside over the imprisonment and the torture and even the murder of Christians trying to get them to deny Jesus as the Messiah. And this is probably a tough admission for Paul to make. I mean, I, I, would, I would at least think it's not easy for him to think back on it. And so, you know, why would he say it? Why would he, why would he tell this part of his story? I think we've got to recognize the purpose of Paul 
sharing such horrible stuff with his audience, it's not for shock value. He is painting the stark contrast to show this huge difference between who he used to be and who he had since become. And I doubt that Paul's recounting of this was particularly cheerful. I mean, because he certainly must have regretted his actions as a persecutor of Christians, but he, he doesn't seem to either dress it up, nor does he get bogged down in the dismal details of it. And that brings up a quick point that I want to touch on before we, we continue. When you have an opportunity to share your story of coming to faith in Christ, don't reminisce too much, okay? Don't reminisce too much. Now, the literal definition of reminisce is to recall past events. And so obviously you got to do that to share your story. But I'm referring to, uh, really there, there's a, a couple of mistakes that people tend to make in sharing who we used to be uh, when we were lost. One of them is to give the faulty impression that your pre-salvation days were the good old days. And I've heard testimonies where the vast majority of the time was spent on how sinful their life used to be to the point it sounds almost like their past is being glorified instead of being shown as something that needs to be cast off. And the other mistake that I think is commonly made when sharing one's testimony is we forget that we are forgiven. I'm going to say that again because I don't think enough people connected with that. We forget that we have been forgiven. We don't have to constantly live in sorrow over our past because the precious blood of Jesus paid for our sins when he died on that cross. So, so it's enough to footnote the past. We shouldn't glamorize it, and, and we shouldn't wallow in shame about it. You know, you got to be careful to, of, of what you share. I remember one time, um, this, this wonderful church I worked at a long, long time ago, um, there was a lady who is visiting the church for the first time. I'm very brave of her, but just out of nowhere, she, they asked for any prayer requests. This lady stood up, and she started just to shout about her testimony. And, and she was like, I did terrible things. I slept with men. I used to cuss like a freight train. And, and she just kept on going like that, you know, until somebody like, sit down. It's like, okay, you got you to be a little, you know, careful about how you share your testimony. You don't want it to be a distraction. You don't want it to be uh, overbearing where your, your past is what gets all the attention, okay? So, having said all that, I want to pick up in verse 16. Paul has segued into the story of when Jesus found him on the road to Damascus here. He says, remember, he's talking to, to uh, Agrippa. He says, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and around those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's an interesting phrase. That, that, that last part only shows up in this testimony, and it's a reference to ox carts. Because oxen uh, didn't always take kindly to being driven. You know, sometimes they would, they would rebel. They would occasionally start kicking back on the cart, and that can be dangerous for people. And so to prevent the oxen from kicking, people would just affix pointed boards to the front of the cart. So if you kicked, you reaped the unpleasant consequences and you learned not to kick. That way, the oxen would only be hurting themselves when they lashed out, which is exactly what all of us do when we reject God's authority and try to go our own way. Anyway, and Paul says, 
I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to anoint you, excuse me, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. In English, it's a little confusing, but there's so much here. I think that, that Paul is again revealing a major part of any believer's testimony, which is to say, when the Lord met you. To share when the Lord met you. For Paul, it was on the road to Damascus. You know, for you, it might have been a church camp, or maybe you were listening to a preacher somewhere, or maybe you were sick, broke, or simply broken. You came to the end of yourself. But it's important to share where you were in your story when God showed up. Now, let's say this first. Obviously, not everyone is called in the same way that Paul was. You know, I doubt that most of us were blinded by a dazzling light and then had a two-way audible conversation with Christ himself. That's fairly unusual. But still, all of us are called to be servants and witnesses, and we're all appointed to be those things in whatever context God has placed us. But whenever the Lord saves a person, he always reveals himself to them in some way. And it can be an important detail for us to share how. You know, what, what were the circumstances in that moment? How, how did he show up? How were you convicted? You know, for Paul, I bet it blew his mind when Jesus said, I am the one that you are persecuting. I mean, talk about a, a paradigm shifting without a clutch. All this time, Paul thought that what he was doing was God's work. He thought by hurting people, he was pleasing the Lord, and now the Lord set him straight. Now, by the way, uh, for those of you who are like me that grew up in church and don't even remember a time when you, did, when you didn't believe, there are still milestones in your faith walk that, that you're, you're going to see where you, you can recognize God showed up. You know, the two biggest ones in my life probably have been since I was even ordained as a pastor, not just got saved. You know, so you don't have to know the exact moments that God regenerated you. Okay? That's, not, that's not the thing that you have to know. You have to know Jesus. Okay? And you need to know when he showed up to be able to share your testimony, a time that he revealed himself in a big, big way. So um, the fact is, your stories of encountering God are going to very likely be what matters to the people that you give your testimony to. Because listen, they can argue till the cows come home with your beliefs, but it's a lot harder to argue with someone else's concrete experience. Anyway, Jesus continues speaking. He says, I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people, and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that you may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is some rich, deep stuff here. We're going to talk about the whole delivering you thing later, but for now, let's note why God opens people's eyes, okay? I want you to bear in mind, we're not talking about physically opening people's eyes, although Jesus did that for Paul and he and his disciples did that in, in their respective ministries. We're talking about spiritually 
opening people's eyes. Why does God do that? Well, firstly, Jesus says right here, he says, he says it's to bring us out of darkness and into the light. Well, why? Because we used to be in darkness. I mean, like a, like a blind person in unfamiliar circumstances, we're, we're fumbling around in the dark, stumbling and trying, to, trying and failing to fully understand what, what we have around us and even the fact that our eyes need to be opened. And without being given that capability to see, we're never, we're never going to leave our lostness. But God gives us eyes to see in order to save us from Satan. Because apart from God's intervention, we would continue to be, as Jesus said, children of the devil. And we would stay in our, our sinful and our selfish rebellion. But see, by people's eyes being open to the truth, we can be rescued from the power of the devil by the power of God. And through this process, we receive some incredible things. I want you to look at, look at what Paul says that God offers to those who are rescued from Satan's power. He says, all this is in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So, so in that, that little sentence fragment, Paul tells us that God freely provides two immensely valuable things, forgiveness and cleansing. This is going to get theological here, but I know you guys can handle this. Forgiveness of sins is a way to express what it means to be justified by God. In other words, he views us as sinless because of the sacrifice of Jesus paid for our sins in full. Now, by faith in him, we, we, are, we are considered innocent. We are righteous in his sight. Of course, the, this change before God... Uh, it's going to always result in a changed life. There's really no way around that. You know, the, the, the reformers used to say justification is by faith alone, but faith that justifies is never alone. It's always going to be accompanied by progressive sanctification, which Paul refers to at the end of verse 18. That, that's the cleansing he talks about. It occurs, it occurs in real time over the course of one's life. So, so when, a person, when a person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, they are immediately forgiven their sins, past, present, and future. you got to understand that, because eh? I, I think a lot of times we get worried, we get caught up in, the, in this theological loop where we're like, oh, i, I, I got to continue to beg for forgiveness because if I, if I make a mistake between now and the day I die, uh, you know, it it's almost goes back to like, like you need some sort of absolution. Listen, Jesus died on the cross so that we have forgiveness of sins. All of them. You have forgiveness of sins. So most of the time, every once in a while, I will. I'll say, God, forgive me, because I know I just you know, said or did something stupid. It's usually in traffic. But, but when, I, when I remember to talk with him in, in the way that I believe is the most biblical way, instead of asking for forgiveness, I thank him for forgiveness. Because I've already got it. 
He gave it to us back on the cross. Anyway, so, so when this happens, when we are forgiven all of our sins, we are righteous in the sight of God. And that's typically what we mean when we say that someone is saved. Okay? However, if this once-for-all righteousness by faith has occurred, then our lives will begin to conform, however imperfectly, to the example of Christ, so that we are also growing in righteousness as a result of His Holy Spirit's work in us. Now, this is a deep concept, but it bears repeating. If our sins are forgiven, that shouldn't result in a feeling of freedom to sin. It should result in a freedom from sin. He didn't just die to deliver us from sin's penalty, but also from its power. So two things ought to happen. One, we should increasingly sin less than before. Okay, And two, our sins should simultaneously be more repulsive to us than before. In other words, our sins won't be as common and, and hopefully not as egregious, but they're going to bother us way more than they did when we weren't in Christ. And we'll become far more thankful all the time for His forgiveness because we will realize just how much we need it. Another thing God offers as a result of forgiving our sins, is a place. You know, Jesus called it a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And this is the same Jesus who told his disciples in John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I go there to prepare a place for you. So listen, church, if you've been justified, then you're being sanctified, and you've got a place prepared for you in the kingdom of heaven when you're glorified. Let's keep reading. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. I want you to pause there just for a minute, okay? It's just a reminder that, that Paul didn't waste any time when it came to obeying Christ's call, okay? <clears throat> he immediately, like that day apparently, started preaching Jesus in the very city where he had intended to eradicate Jesus. And just think about that. Church, if God is calling, but we are stalling, then that's appalling. Okay? Think about it. Think about it. Well, all right, I will. If God is calling, but we are stalling, that is appalling. We need to be obedient to God's call in our lives. And if we know that that's what we ought to be doing, guys, it's time to get it in gear. Step it up. Anyway, so, so Paul declared to all of these people that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Now, now all right, friends, we're, we're going to spend just... A little time, because we talked about what God offers, right? We spent a few minutes on that. So now let's look at what he demands of those who receive his offer. And, and yes, the word demands may sound harsh, but it is 100% accurate. I don't see anywhere in Scripture that God just makes suggestions or recommendations. Okay? So Paul was clear. Everyone needs to repent and turn to God. Now, y'all may know I like the word repent, because it's... it's it's such a loaded word. It, it literally translates to, uh, to, metanoia means beyond thinking. 
with the connotation one's mind and heart is being reoriented in a new direction. And so in a sense, it's kind of restarting or restating, I guess, the idea of moving from the power of Satan to the power of God, right? The very first thing, the very first thing that Jesus proclaimed in his public ministry that we know of is found in Mark 1.15. Repent and believe the gospel. I mean, that's, that's pretty important. <laughs> and those two things go hand in hand. So God demands that people stop being focused on sin and selfishness and focus instead on what pleases Him because He's holy. And He commands us to be holy as well. So if we are realigned to a godly focus, then the next part is pretty easy to do. It's to prove it by our deeds. And that's what Paul meant by performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. It's almost verbatim what John the Baptist preached. You know, y'all, the message of God has been very consistent. And it links forgiveness with repentance. Again, if you are truly converted to Christ, then your life will change. There are far too many professing Christians today that are indistinguishable from non-Christians in our daily lives. And the reason is probably that Christianity is more of a theory instead of a practice. You know, if you're... If you're claiming to be a Christian, but you are unrepentantly living in known sin, habitual lying, sex outside of marriage, uh, slandering others, materialism, you need to stop. Either stop telling people you're a Christian, or else stop acting like sin isn't a big deal because it's bringing dishonor on the Lord and on His bride. The bride of Christ is a beautiful bride in, in, in a white gown. But there are so many people that are claiming to be part of the body of Christ that are making her look bad. All right, verse 21. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets of Moses said would come to pass. Now, you guys remember earlier when, when Paul said that Jesus told him he'd be delivered from both his own people and the Gentiles. Well, here, here he's fleshing that out a little bit more, right? Because he's, he's indicating that God's help is what prevented the Jews from killing him. And it's by God's design that he's standing before the king and queen and governor as rulers of Israel. That, that was entirely God's plan. And this is good for us to bear in mind whenever we're given our testimony because sometimes it can help others if we share how God has cared for us you know, throughout the course of, of our own lives. And this is a, a, pretty, it's a pretty open field, really. I mean, like if, if, we can, if we can see where God has been active, then we can talk about what he's been up to, Right? And it's important to remember what God has done. Do you have any idea how many times the Exodus story is repeated in the Old Testament? It's in there a lot. Because we have to be reminded of what God has done. We have that, that tendency, you know, what have you done for me lately, Lord? <laughs> well, it's like, even if he never did anything else, he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. He raised him from the dead to prove he was telling the truth about who he is. That's huge, I'm just saying. 
even before we were saved, you know, God's been working on us. And, and then there's, there's how he got us to salvation and how he brought us through salvation. And then how he's gotten us through everything since then. And there's a lot of options here. I mean, obviously, we want to talk about how God has, has how he cares for us by providing us a way of salvation. I mean, that's, that's a real big deal. But he's also been active in multiple ways before and since. I mean, he's, he's been giving you protection when you're in danger of harm. He, he gives you guidance uh, when you're unsure of what next steps to take. He even gives you provision you know, he, by meeting all of your needs and probably most of our wants because we're American. God blesses us far beyond what we even have willing to, to admit to ourselves or what we, what we see and it can be powerful for people when we recount our experiences of God taking care of us. You know, maybe we're, we're struggling with physical or mental health or finances or, or any situation that he carried us through. But one thing that we really need to be careful about is the danger of making the gifts appear to be more desirable than the giver. Okay, whenever we're sharing our personal testimony with somebody, we must emphasize the spiritual blessing over the earthly blessing. I mean, you know, hey, it, it's good for you if God has given you a successful career, you make good money, you know, but, but that's nowhere near as important as the gift of his Holy Spirit. Or maybe, you know, I, I, it's great that God helped you beat cancer, but it's more important that he's given you eternal life. I mean, I hope this makes sense. God blesses us in many ways, but, but the eternal blessings far outweigh the temporal ones. We ought to treat that properly whenever we testify for Christ because a person's, listen to me, you need to hear this, a person's greatest need isn't health or wealth or success because your best life is not now. At least not if you're a Christian. You know, it, it's been said, it's been said correctly that for those that are in Christ, here on earth is the worst it's ever going to be because you have heaven to look forward to. But for those that are outside of Christ, here on earth is the best it's ever going to be because they have hell to look forward to. And that should not strike you as unimportant. If you think about the fact that there are people dying apart from the Lord who are going to experience eternal damnation and your reaction is, meh. There's something deeply, deeply wrong. We ought to be concerned over the eternal future of everyone that lives within our sphere of influence. And the way to affect that person's future is to be prepared to witness for Jesus. And by the way, that's where Paul finishes up here. His concluding statement starts with the reminder that literally every messianic promise in the Old Testament law and prophets was fulfilled in one guy. And it culminates in verse 23. What the prophets of Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. This right here is, is key. This is the part of the testimony that makes all the difference, and that's about who Jesus is and what God did through him on the cross. We cannot leave this out. We cannot leave this out of a testimony. If you have time, prioritize this if your time is short. 
I think too often people just leave it at God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That will not save you. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. Of the whole who, what, when, where, why, and how, this one, the who, is the absolutely essential ingredient with the number two being the what. That's a, a close behind thing. It's a close second. But the gospel is the one thing that no one will be saved without, and that's the good news. This, this is the means through which every gift of God can be freely offered to sinful man, and we call it the gospel, and it is an indispensable part of our testimony. And the gist of this, this gospel, which is, again, the power of God for the salvation of those who believe, the, the, the nitty-gritty, the nuts and bolts, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, is that Jesus is the Christ who suffered and died to pay for our sins and then rose from the dead just like God said. People need to believe the gospel. People need to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But here's the thing. Romans 10 indicates that people won't call on Jesus if they don't believe on him. And they're not going to believe if they haven't heard and they can't hear if the gospel isn't proclaimed to them. And for it to be proclaimed, there needs to be someone willing to proclaim it. I see a room full of people who need to declare the gospel to someone. Someone in your life needs to hear this. That's where all of us come in. It's, it's not just me. It's not just the other preachers who stand in the pulpit of their church and proclaim the word until the steam comes out their ears. That's not... It's not just our job, it is the duty and privilege of every Christian to share Jesus with others. And I know I, I keep referring back to 1 Peter 3 several times over the last couple of months, but it so often applies. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. Your hope, friends, is the blood of Jesus Christ applied to you by the grace of God through faith. And each of us ought to be willing and able to share our story of how Jesus saved us and also how he has made a way to save anyone who would put their trust in him. And friends, be ready for when God calls you and says, can I get a witness? Because that witness might just be you. So this morning, I'm going to offer this invitation. It's, it's more than an invitation. It's kind of a challenge. If you've not been obedient to Christ, if you, if you do not believe in Jesus, I beg you, believe on him. Put your faith in him. And if you've done that, and you're like, you know, I, I, I do want to believe Jesus. I do want to receive him as my Lord, not just my Savior, because he's your Lord and Savior. If that's you, but you've not been baptized according to what the Bible teaches, you've not, as a believer, been immersed in water, then, then this morning, you have a chance. It's going to be cold. I don't care. I'll get in there with you. I'll have waders on, so I'll be warm. But you'll be cold. But it's better to be cold for a few minutes. <laughs> Folks, if, if you haven't done that, take that step. Profess your faith in Jesus Christ. 
Profess that faith, be baptized, and then obey. Walk according to God's word. You and I know, because we've talked about it multiple times, the sine qua non, the thing without which there can be no salvation, is faith. But if you have faith, there's things that God calls you to do. To profess it as one, to be baptized as one, to walk in obedience as one, to be connected with a body of believers as one. And I want you to know that God has high expectations. And at the same time, he provides us with not only the Holy Spirit to help us grow into those expectations, but also the forgiveness of sins because we never will on this side actually live up to those expectations. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us cleansing. But if this morning, if you haven't taken steps that God has demanded of you, I challenge you to do so.